Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I, the Lord, declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 10-14, through 14, New International Version But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In some past episodes, we've been focusing on the historical details of the story of David and Goliath to see how the story is supported by historical and archaeological records. Today, we are continuing our conversation about the confrontation with the founder of Crystal Sea Books and author R.D. Fierro. R.D., I think you said that today you wanted to pay particular attention to David and see how his life is such a great illustration of the Bible's remarkable unity. As you see it, David's life is a perfect illustration of the Bible's records of history and prophecy and are always fully integrated with the Bible's overall message. Am I right? That is exactly right. As we often mention on Anchored by Truth, the Bible is a remarkable book, which is what we would expect, of course, from a book that is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The Bible's central story is all about the creation, fall, and redemption, and since it only uses the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to discuss the creation and fall, the vast majority of the Bible tells us about God's incredible plan of redemption. And since Jesus is the central character in that plan, in a very real sense, the entire Bible is about Jesus. So we would expect to be able to trace a link between every part of the Bible, including the historical stories and narratives like that of David and Goliath, and find a connection between them and Jesus. Of course, it's a little easier to do that with some parts of the Bible, like the story of David and Goliath, than it is to do with other parts of the Bible, for instance, the details of the Levitical Code. 
But even in the more esoteric parts of the Bible, there is a direct connection between that part of the Bible and Jesus if we know where to look. Well, as we like to say around here, that's why the boss is so famous. But before we get into the serious stuff, let's take a lighter look at David's encounter with Goliath using another of Crystal C's Life Lessons with a Laugh. This is the final lesson out of a series of five. Today we're going to see that persistence is an essential element of Christian life. True that. To quote a line from one of our life lessons on Noah, you have to persist to exist till the myths are dismissed. I wonder, how many rhymes are in today's lesson? Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today with that energetic embodiment of eclectic and electric inspiration. Uh, hang on, I got this. I got this. Jeff, Jeffrey, no, uh, Jedediah, no, Your Majesty, uh, no. <laughs> An honor to meet you, Your Majesty. Oh, as you wish, Your Majesty, on Your Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> Your Majesty? Really? Uh, Jerry. No, it's, oh, wait, he got the name right. How did he get Naturally, I did, J.K., because I have a real gift for tricky names like yours. That didn't last long. Still Jerry over here. To me, you're the bee's knees that makes tall trees bend in a breeze and say pretty please. Yikes. Where does he go from there? Not to worry, my sagacious acquaintance, about where we're headed when we haven't even picked our mode of transportation. Maybe if we ruminate and deliberate a bit more on the story of David and Goliath... It will help you find consolation for your destination consternation. Well, I think you mean... Wait, did you say Goliath? Did he say Goliath? Of course I did, Jay Cakes. That's who David was combattling in the Valley of Elah. I would think you'd know that by now. Hopefully you implemented that wheat bran suggestion I gave you. will help you feel more alert in the morning. I'm alert. I was just surprised that... Well, never mind. I guess that just proves that if you wait long enough, just about anything can happen. So true, Jay, the light of the day. So true. In fact, you see that very lesson very clearly in David's very interesting, and might I add, at the risk of being labeled a bit of a wag, varied life. Huh. Very. Very varied. Is that more that rhymes with Jerry stuff? No juice out of that, Orange Jay Squeeze. I'm cerebrally contemplating the entire life of David, not just his Ella escapades with the mail-clad monolith that catapulted his story into the top tier of tales being told among tale-tellers of his time. Did you hear the one about the pretty boy from Bethlehem? Oh no, what? Yep. The kid with the stone rocked the giant to the bone and sent his spirit home. And everybody started singing about it. Oh, David, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey, David. Hey, David. Oh, David, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey, David. Hey, David. You know, after everyone started singing David's praises, you might have thought David would lead a charmed life. Especially since the major prophet of the time, Samuel, around five years earlier, had told David that one day he would be anointed the king of Israel. After Goliath, David did sort of become the star of the Hebrew blogosphere, didn't he? 
Uh, not sure about that, Jatron. I'm not an expert on 11th century BC social media activity and interweb communication commotion. But what I do know is that after felling the ladder-sized lumbering lunkhead, David became super famous, and Saul the King did not like it. Kings can be like that. Fan of your music one day, confiscating your profits, or your head the next. True dad. At first, Saul liked he was chilled with David's success. Invited him home to the palace, eventually let him date and marry one of his daughters, gave him a seat in the executive dining room. Ooh, I wouldn't mind that. Probably could get segments on everything, including Boston cream pie. Mm. Uh, this is a little before Boston, JJ. Still Jerry. Uh, the city or the pie. Still like pie. In any event, it didn't last. At some point, the Bible says Saul saw that David was prospering, and you know how it is. Some people can't stand success in someone else. True that, no matter how much pie they have access to. Once Saul turned on David, he really turned on him. Saul not only revoked his pass to the executive dining room, he chased David out of the palace and eventually chased him all across Israel. David was on the run for years. Hope David had been using his gym membership before that and had some good running shoes. In the end, though, it didn't really matter. Saul never caught David, and eventually he got caught by the Philistines. God had said that David would become the king of Israel, and he did. But all told, it was probably over 30 years between the time he was anointed by Samuel and he became king. Wow, that's so cool it gives me a brain freeze. That's why sometimes you should go for the pie instead of ice cream. You know, J.J., that after the Goliath episode, David became totally unlike us. You mean by becoming a hero? No, Jerry. David became famous. It's... Oh, right. Ooh, solid hit off that pitch, R.D. It's our... uh, uh, Oh, oh, right. So you see, J.J., what all this means, right? Being faithful is more important than being famous. Again, J-Ball, you have bounced a solid double over that big wall in the outfield of biblical truth. The secret is to keep your eye on the ball. Oh, and not to eat too much pie before it's your turn at bat. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Sports crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where... We're not famous, but our boss is. Hmm. Not so many rhymes, but a lot about pie. I guess there's a lesson in there, too. So, on to David. The Bible actually pretty much contains David's entire life story. The Bible actually devotes just about as much space to David's life as it does to Jesus. David is quite unusual in that way. I think that part of the reason is because David's life is such a great illustration of the unity and coherence of Scripture. David was what some people used to refer to as a Renaissance man. He was not only a warrior and a great general, but he was also a poet and a musician. But even more importantly for the Bible's purposes, besides being a Renaissance man in worldly pursuits, he was also simultaneously a prophet and the subject of prophecy. And David's name is attached to one of the most important covenants in the Bible, which of course is called the Davidic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant was an essential element in the overall covenant of grace. 
Well, that does sound interesting. But let's address one important element first. Is there any extra-biblical confirmation of David as king of Israel? Well, actually there is. In 1993, at the site of Tel Dan, which is in northern Israel, an excavation discovered what's called a stella, or basically an ancient slab. And on this slab, there was an inscription that came to be called the Tel Dan inscription, or the House of David inscription. The excavation was directed by an Israeli archaeologist named Avaram Biran, and he discovered this slab of material that contained an inscription in Aramaic, and the inscription is one that commemorates the victory of an Aramean king over two of his southern neighbors. And the two of his southern neighbors that this Aramean king defeated, he called on the slab the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. Now, the text of the inscription is written in Aramaic characters, so it's fairly easy for scholars to read because the ancient Aramaic is a well-known and understood language. And in it, the Aramean king boasts that he, under the divine guidance of his god, Hadad, vanquished several thousand Israelite and Judahite horsemen and charioteers before he personally dispatched both of his royal opponents. Now, unfortunately, this particular inscription, this particular slab, the recovered fragments of it, don't tell us the names of the specific kings that were involved in the encounter. But comparing the description of the action within the inscription and that of other information, much of that coming from the Bible, many scholars believe that the inscription recounts a campaign of Hazael of Damascus in which he defeated both Jehoram of Israel and Azahiah of Judah. Well. The fact that a foreign king would take the trouble to record a victory of a king of the house of David would tell us that the foreign king was well aware of the dynasty founded by someone named David. So that is consistent with the Bible's account of history. What does the Bible say about prophecies concerning David? Well, the Bible tells us that David was both a prophet and the subject of prophecy. For instance, in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, The Apostle Peter is there giving a sermon or a speech, and he's addressing a crowd in Jerusalem, and this is after Jesus' resurrection. So during that speech, he stated specifically to the crowd that David was a prophet, that David as a prophet had foreseen that the Messiah's body would not remain in the grave in order to suffer decay or corruption. In that part of his sermon, if you will, Peter was quoting verse number 10 from Psalm 16. These are recorded in the Bible, so if they're recorded in the Bible, that means that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter was labeling David as a prophet. Now, it's important to know that this particular prophecy that arises out of Psalm 16, when Peter was quoting it, Peter was using the psalm, the verse from the psalm, to illustrate that Jesus was the Messiah, because what Peter was saying was that because of the resurrection, Jesus' body did not remain in a tomb long enough to suffer decay or corruption. So when David originally wrote Psalm 16, which was over a thousand years earlier, David was prophesying that one of his ultimate descendants, the Messiah, would not remain in the grave after death long enough for his body to suffer decay or corruption. When Peter said that David was a prophet, though, he was not attributing any special abilities to David, though he was. I mean, in a biblical sense, a prophet was someone who represented God before the people, whereas a priest was someone who represented the people before God. 
Yes, and I think that's a really key point. When the Bible says that someone is a prophet, it's not stating or implying that that person has some inborn ability or particular talent or skill that they somehow worked up or developed by their own effort. It would be better to view a biblical prophet as simply a person that God chose to use in a particular way, almost always to carry a particular message. Because after all, when prophecies are given to a person that are going to come true either days, weeks, or in some cases hundreds of years later, that knowledge is obviously coming from God. So a person who is labeled as a biblical prophet is just a person that God has chosen to use in a particular way, and one of the ways God is using that person is by delivering supernatural knowledge to them that that person can then use to communicate to other people. You have also said that David was not only a prophet, but that he was the subject of prophecy. Can you give us an example of what you're talking about? Well, unfortunately, two of the best-known examples of prophecies that concern David aren't very happy ones. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan gave David both a short-term and a longer-term prophecy. And this prophecy was given to David after David's well-known instance of adultery with Bathsheba. The short-term prophecy that Nathan gave to David was that the child that resulted from the adultery between the two of them would die. And unfortunately, that prophecy came true shortly after the child was born. The longer-term prophecy that Nathan gave David was that the sword would never depart from David's house. In other words, Nathan was telling David that his family was always going to be in conflict, that for the rest of David's life, he was basically going to have a very unhappy family life because his family was going to be embroiled in one form of conflict or another. And there was. One of David's sons, Amnon, became obsessed with his half-sister Tamar and ultimately raped her. Sadly, David was a neglectful father and didn't do anything to punish Amnon, so Tamar's full brother, Absalom, murdered Amnon. David did do something about that and banished Absalom But that wasn't the end. David ultimately let Absalom return to court, but after he did, Absalom led a rebellion that almost ended David's reign before one of David's generals killed Absalom, though this was contrary to David's instructions. Exactly. Put a little poetically, the sword devoured Absalom, even though David had tried to prevent it. So even despite David's best efforts to reduce the impact of the prophecy on the life of his children, because God had told David that the sword was going to remain in his family, one of David's favored sons, Absalom, actually was killed in direct violation of David's explicit orders. And even on David's deathbed, there was a conflict between two of David's sons. The conflict was between Solomon, who ultimately succeeded David, and Adonijah, who was another one of David's sons. Even though David designated Solomon as his specific successor, Adonijah, who was Solomon's older brother, tried to surreptitiously steal the throne away by using intercession from Bathsheba. Well, Adonijah's machinations failed, and unfortunately, uh, Solomon was compelled to order Adonijah's execution. So, right up to the end of David's life, there was conflict between his children, and even after David had died, The conflict continued until Solomon was finally able to consolidate his own reign as the new king of Israel. Well, let's move away from that and focus on what's probably the most famous of the prophecies that pertain to David 
and in fact one that became enshrined in what we call the Davidic Covenant. That was the prophecy given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, and repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, which we used as one of our opening scriptures. Precisely. God promised David that God would raise up one of David's descendants, and God promised David that, and this is a quote, he would secure his royal throne forever. Well, even more powerfully than that, God also said that God would be this descendant's father and that this descendant would be God's son. Well, of course, when God was promising that to David, God was promising that the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, would be one of David's descendants. Well, those of us who live on this side of Jesus' life know that these promises, among others, were fulfilled literally in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And no small amount of the New Testament is devoted to showing how these and other prophecies were actually fulfilled in Jesus' life, thereby identifying and qualifying Jesus to be the promised Messiah. Can you give us a couple of examples? Sure. For instance, there are two genealogies that are given for Jesus in the New Testament. One of the genealogies is in the book of Matthew in chapter 1, and the second genealogy is in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. Those genealogies are similar in a lot of ways, but there are some differences, and a comparison of between the two genealogies helps give us a lot of information that we might miss if we didn't have both of them. But a key part of both of the genealogies is that both of the genealogies demonstrate that Jesus is a lineal descendant of David, that Jesus is a biological descendant, and he can trace his ancestry all the way back up to David. Now, one of the curious things between the two different genealogies is that in the Matthew genealogy, Jesus' descent is traced through Solomon, one of David's sons, Solomon. But in the Lucan genealogy, Luke traces Jesus' descent from David through another one of David's sons, Nathan. That would seem to be a discrepancy in the Bible. And certainly some critics have attempted to portray the difference in the two genealogies as a discrepancy or a contradiction. But there are a couple of different ways that the seeming contradiction can be resolved. Many scholars believe that the genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus' father, Joseph, because that would have been the way that the Jews would ordinarily have traced the genealogy for a person. It would have gone back through the father. Whereas Luke, who was a Greek writing and a little bit less bound by the Hebrew traditions that would have been of concern to Matthew, many scholars believe that the Lucan genealogy was one that traces his mother Mary's ancestry. So one possible resolution for the fact that there are some differences in the two genealogies is that one traces the ancestry of Joseph, even though he was not the biological father of Jesus, he was the legal father of Jesus, and the other genealogy traces the ancestry of Mary, who of course was Jesus' biological mother. Fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Of course, that was the point that the Jewish leadership didn't want to acknowledge, that Jesus' life fulfilled all the prophecies that had been made about the promised Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. He would be preceded by a forerunner who turned out to be John the Baptist. He would die among the criminals, but be buried in a rich man's tomb. He would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver, even that his executioners would gamble for his clothing. Yes, 
And a lot of those prophecies that came true in the life of Jesus were made by David when he wrote his portion of the Psalms. For instance, in some of the Psalms that David wrote, he mentioned the manner of Jesus' death. And he's the one who mentioned that Jesus' executioners would gamble with dice for his clothing. So Jesus and David were linked together by an even stronger connection than just biological ancestry. I don't think it's too strong a statement to say that despite the fact that David lived a thousand years before Jesus, David's entire life was a key link in God's long and unfolding chain of salvation. So the story of David and Goliath helps lead us into one of the most complete biographies present in the Bible, David's. And as the second king of Israel, and in many ways its most successful, from a human standpoint, David is an incredible illustration of the Bible's unity. David lived a thousand years before Jesus, but David gave us important details about Jesus' life, death, and eternal kingship. David both uttered prophecy and fulfilled prophecy also marked his life. Of course, the big difference between David and Jesus was that Jesus was sinless and David was not. But you know, David's many failings did not stop God from using David as an important part of the plan of salvation or even from calling David a man after God's own heart. And I think that should be incredibly encouraging to all the rest of us sinners. We can stumble and fail and we often do so repeatedly. I know I do. But God can still use us. And God can use us to accomplish amazing things despite all of our failures. And even better than that, God can still truly call us His sons and daughters as long as we continue to seek His face, confess our sins, and pursue His goal for our life, which is holiness. And that's one of the big reasons we launched Anchored by Truth to help everyone remember that God has given us a special revelation to help us as we seek to accomplish His will for our life. Sounds like a good time for a prayer. Since we are nearing the start of a new school year, how about if we take some time today to pray for our children who are just beginning to start school? A prayer for a child starting school. Blessed Father, your word tells us that children are a gift from you. We thank you that you have blessed our family with our children, and we glorify you that you are their real father. Your love for them exceeds any earthly love, and this encourages us that we may come to you in prayer for all their needs. Soon we have a child who will be starting school. We pray that you would meet our many needs at this time. We pray first that you will enable us to send them to a school that will be safe and that genuinely treasures the opportunity to be involved with your precious children. Help us to find a balance that is so important to helping them grow in trust while also learning to cope with the world and its temptations. Awaken in them and reawaken in us the joy of learning. When the disciples tried to prevent the children from coming to Christ, Christ rebuked them and forever established that He cares greatly for little children. He reminded the disciples that the little ones have angels in heaven who stand before the Father. 
we take comfort that Christ himself undertakes to provide for children. Therefore, we pray in Jesus' name in the confident expectation of mercy and provision. Amen. Next time on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue with our study of David and Goliath. We want to start to make a direct connection with how Scripture is so beautifully constructed that no matter where you look, you see a picture of some facet of God's amazing love. We hope you'll be with us then, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, Try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.